Hello, friends, and welcome to the Nugget Climbing Podcast. This is Stephen Dimmitt. My guest today is Swedish rock climber, root setter, and YouTuber, Emil Abrahamsson, or Emil Abramsson. That's my best attempt at the correct Swedish pronunciation. You'll hear how Emil actually says his own name in the episode. I've actually mentioned Emil a couple of times on the podcast in my episodes with Steve Mache and Tyler Nelson. Emil is the guy who put out that video that went viral of him hangboarding two times per day for 30 days and getting extraordinary results. And of course, we did talk about that in this interview. But Emil is not just making training videos. He is more of a vlogger and makes really well-made videos that capture a lot of the experience of outdoor bouldering and projecting and roaming around in the woods and climbing. And I have really been enjoying them in the last couple of months since first reaching out to Emil to do this interview. And I suspect that if you are a fan of this podcast, there is a very good chance you will enjoy his videos as well. So I definitely recommend checking out his YouTube channel. I put links to some of my favorites of Emil's videos and ones we talked about in the show notes. And of course, you can find those at thenuggetclimbing.com. I was interested in chatting with Emil because he's one of those guys who started climbing relatively late in life and wasn't especially athletic before becoming a climber. And he has progressed to a really high level, having climbed multiple V13s, and it seems like he is pretty close to sending the Big Island, which is a famous V15 in Fontainebleau. And we talked about that one. And the interesting thing there is that he started trying it for the first time when he was like a V9 climber. And as you'll hear in the episode, Emil has a rather unique perspective on projecting things that are way above your current limit. And that was a really cool conversation. I definitely took some nuggets away from that. And Emil is just a really thoughtful guy in general. I thought this episode was jam-packed with nuggets, and it is one that I will personally be listening to again to hear Emil's thoughts. Once again, if you enjoyed this episode, be sure to check out Emil's YouTube channel and click on that subscribe button so you can follow along with his journey. He has some really cool things planned for the next year that you won't want to miss. Okay, thanks for listening, friends, and please enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with climber, root setter, and YouTuber. And let's try this pronunciation again, Emil Abramson. Uh, do you have a cutoff time or do you want to stick to a certain time frame today? Uh, not really. Like, I don't have to go anywhere. I'm going training after this um, and working on my camper van, actually, which I'm building. Yeah, I just saw, I saw your announcement, actually. I was just catching up on your videos yesterday. Oh, cool, cool, cool. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, um, congratulations. Stuff like that. Thank you. Thank you. That's exciting. Are you living full time in the van or is it? I am. Yeah, for a, yeah. a year and a half nice. now. Sick. Yeah. yeah. Actually, actually, two years. I've been in the van for two years. I've been living on the road for a year and a half. But the first six months, I was still like working my engineering job and living in a city and just like living in my friend's driveway. <laughs> okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it's great, man. I'm, I didn't know if I'd do it for this long and I don't feel like stopping anytime soon. So 
Yeah. 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 Excited for you. Really cool. (laughs) Thank you. Do you have like a lineup of, of all the places you're excited to go? Planning out the perfect road trip? Kind of. It's, we kind of have a, a planned out road trip. Um, it's mainly like the bigger areas, you know, we're going to, uh, first off to, to Switzerland, uh, to try out some of the, the biggies like off the wagon and, uh, dream time and pretty much anything in magic wood, uh, as well as to just sample some of the nicer lines that might go a bit quicker. Um, I don't know if you know much of the bouldering here in Europe, but we have a ton of, of gold here and there. Um, and I'm just going to try and, you know, get on top of as many as possible. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but yeah, it's Switzerland first and then Fontainebleau and to finish things off, we're probably going to Albarazin in Spain. Uh, and I'm sure we'll get, you know, a little bit of rope climbing in here and there, but I don't really have any areas that I'm set on when it comes to rope climbing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, you know, more of a boulder. So that's what I'll focus on to start. And the same goes for Cordelia. Ooh, yeah. Your girlfriend? Yeah, exactly. My partner. Cool. So that's going to be, it's going to be fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure that'll be so much fun. And you're planning to continue making videos the whole time? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we're getting a pretty good electrical system in just so I can edit videos film videos and pretty much document the entire trip Uh, so that's one of the big focuses is to just make as many as many videos as possible Uh, i've always wanted to record more stuff you know abroad because i've basically only been recording in sweden i think the only thing i've filmed was in Fontainebleau when i tried the big island Uh, as well as a little bit of climbing in lofoten which is an island in the northern parts of norway which is quite magical, but you know. <laughs> yeah, looks beautiful there. Do you do much bouldering or is it a little bit of everything? Probably close to a 50-50 split these days. I mainly focus on sport climbing and I kind of always look at my bouldering through the lens of like training for sport routes I want to do, but ah, okay. I don't know. Like I, I go through waves, man. Like right now, for instance, I have all these sport climbs I want to do this fall, but I'm bouldering right now in, in Rocky Mountain National Park actually, and yep. I've never been here before. And um, I was actually out super late last night doing a night session. So much fun. And nice. I kind of just want to keep bouldering. <laughs> yeah. 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 So a mix of both. I haven't, uh, I really want to level up my bouldering actually. Um, it's been a yeah. while since I've broken some new ground there and I think that's really going to help all my other climbing. So feeling pretty motivated on that. Nice. Yeah. That's good. And your, your videos, honestly, help a lot. And that's something I'm really excited to talk about with you today. I mean, I think your story is really cool to share with people because, you know, as much as I talk about, talk with amazing like professional climbers who are climbing at the highest level, it's, it's really rare that we get someone who's climbing at your level who started relatively late in life. I think you started at 16, uh, Mm. if I remember rightly from your videos and you've really progressed quickly and steadily to a really high level. And I think that's so much more relatable to a lot of people listening than the pro climber (laughs) that started at four years old and had a coach and, you know, parents who were already (laughs) really good climbers and whatever else. So, um, so yeah, I think this will be really fun. I think there's going to be a lot to dig into here. Yeah. 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 That's uh, funny. You should mention that's one of my, yeah. uh, Favorite subjects on just how you, how you progress as a climber and, uh, like what kind of goals you should set up to actually achieve that because i think that was one of my big things when i started climbing was just putting up new 
more 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 and more goals pretty much every climbing session mm. especially when i started climbing outdoors that was like from my first session outdoors from that day on i was like okay next goal 7b okay next goal 7c <laughs> next goal 10 7c's next goal 8a next goal 10 8a's and just trying to get as much volume in as possible and like putting up new goals and i've had to sort of adapt that throughout the years um to what they are because for the first two years of climbing outdoors i was like 17 at the time uh then i was purely focused on grades and like pushing grades and just doing more 8a's or doing more 7c's um but the thing is that kind of becomes a bit empty after a while because you can't really pursue grades only uh, especially when when you when you've been doing it for so long because then you realize that they're so arbitrary mm. uh, as you have to set out new goals and like when i when i realized that the big island was achievable for me or at least seems achievable for me that was like one of the the best goals i've ever set for training mm. uh, and i think that's something a lot of climbers might be missing out on is just finding a specific goal that really really motivates them uh maybe a line or a campus goal or whatever it may be uh and then getting dead set on that and just focusing on that as much as possible i think that was one of my biggest assets as a climber and for my progression actually yeah that's exactly what I wanted to dig into with you. I mean, I can see that from watching your films and, you know, I've, I've always had big goals. I've always tried harder things and wanted to do hard climbs and whatever else, but seeing your story with some of these climbs that you've put <laughs> years into, it, it really like has shaken me up actually, like in a really good way, you know, seeing your video about the big Island, like this guy started trying a V15 when he was like a V9 climber. What the hell? You know, like that. <laughs> it's really cool. It's totally audacious. And, and I just love it. And I think I need more of that, honestly, in my climbing. I think I, I probably, um, get stuck thinking about like, what is, what's practical like what's a practical use of my time i want to actually be able to do the moves i want to be able to have a chance of doing the thing so that i can go on to the next one and build out my pyramid mm -hmm. and that sort of stuff but i can see it just from watching some of your videos the big island's a great one you know like in that film when you stick the crux move for the first time you change <laughs> your beta and then yeah. you stick the crux move I literally have never seen anyone more excited about anything. <laughs> like you didn't even send the boulder. You just stuck the crux move and you were just yeah. elated. I could see it. And I'm like, wow, I, yeah. I think I need that. I can't not see that like that sort of um, passion and like having this thing that's such a big dream and having this guiding light for all your other training. It has to be so powerful. That's the thing. Like that move and that moment, it still resonates with me on like a lot of climbing sessions. I can just think back and it gets me psyched just knowing that, okay, like goals are achievable if you work hard towards them. Uh, and I think honestly, like a lot of climbers are very comfortable at a very specific level. Like they, they say they're a V7 climber or a V3 climber or a V9 climber. But the thing is, I don't think I've ever seen a climber that I could actually describe as a grade climber. Mm. Like you can climb V3 and accidentally find a v9 that actually kind of works for you um i mean of course you got to build strength and you got to train everything but like getting set on grades in any way is a bit detrimental and it's like you can achieve so much if you just push through that in my perspective anyway if you like 
just find something that looks good and that gets you psyched. That's that's going to get you so far. Um, at least that's how I feel. I mean, I might be wrong, but from my point of view, that's, yeah. I think it's a really good perspective. I mean, it resonates with me and I, I know that I limit myself by categorizing myself as, you know, a V10, V11 climber. Like I, I really don't think I believe deep down that I'm capable of climbing something like a V15 um, just based on how late I started climbing and my progression over the years and things like that. And it's probably bullshit. Like if I changed all my behavior and trained differently and had, you know, like one climb that I was absolutely fixated on and planned everything around that, maybe it's possible, you know, but I, I definitely limit myself by assuming that I'm in a different category than the people that do things like that. So yeah, yeah. That's really powerful. So we should probably give some context for people. Uh, can you describe what the Big Island is in case people aren't familiar? Yeah, definitely. The Big Island is one of the most infamous compression test pieces in Fontainebleau. Uh, it's a V15 boulder that consists of about eight or nine really powerful moves uh, on slopers and pinches and that kind of, kind of stuff. Um, and it was one of my, when I started climbing outdoors a lot, I was, uh, quickly set on going to Fontainebleau, which is a forest near Paris with an endless amount of gorgeous boulders. Uh, so I went there with my brother for about two months, shortly after I graduated high school. And uh, one of the boulders that I read up on was the Big Island. And at the time I was climbing V8, V9 or something like that. And it was just like the dream boulder. And I think my, my eyes got pretty dead set on that one to just one day I will get to the top of this thing. Um, but the thing is, I still haven't, it's been a while, but it's like, but it still is something that motivates me every day to just know that it's, it's still there and it's something I can get back on. Um, and so the big island became this sort of, what's the word? Um, like the symbol for progression in mm -hmm. my climbing, um, in every corner of it actually. So whenever I've been doing other projects, I've always been able to go back to thinking about that specific boulder. Um, and I think everyone can find a boulder that's similar to them, that works the same way for them and becomes sort of like a catalyst for just getting more power <laughs> and just getting stronger and better. Um, if that was, yeah, if that <laughs> explained it well enough. Yeah, that does. That does a really good job of it. And it's funny, it seems really obvious when I hear you say it and when I see it play out for you, and I'm like, man, why, why have I, how have I missed that? Because I, I think I tend to avoid, you know, like I'm an engineer. I have this like very kind of systematic, you know, I want to make all the little steps. I want to like build these little blocks and, and kind of build myself up over years and years and whatever else. But um, I, I think because of that, you know, I, I've avoided getting on really, really hard things because I just, I just think to myself like, okay, I could throw myself at this ridiculously hard project, but is that really the best thing for my training? Is that really the, you know, the best thing I could be doing with my time to make me better? And I think the answer I tell myself is no, because, you know, it's probably better for me to do more climbing on moves that I can actually do and blah, blah, blah. But it, it makes so much sense that you have to, it, it makes so much sense to like hearing you, you know, describe how, you plant the seed, you try something that hard and it becomes this kind of beacon of light that guides everything else that you do and gives you all this motivation to 
to become a different climber, you know, like yeah. you have to become a very different climber and develop very different behaviors to have a chance of doing that thing. And and so that's what you've done and it's, it's working. I mean, you know, you said you haven't done it yet, but it, it certainly seems like you've leveled yourself up to the level. It seems like you're at a point already where you're capable and you're still progressing. So I think it, it seems like a matter of time, hopefully on this, uh, on this road trip, huh? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One of the big, big goals is, of course, the big island. Yeah. Um, as soon as the temps are good there, it's one of my like go-to areas for a pretty long time until it's until it's done, essentially. Mm. Although I will mention, it's been it's been rather good that it's far away. It's like a twenty-hour drive to Fontainebleau from Stockholm, uh, so it's not like I can go I can go there over the weekend. Really, it's it's you know I have to stay there for a while to actually project it, which uh, in a way is good because then it's like. I train, I train, I train, and I always know in the back of my head that, okay, I'm working towards something. And one of those things is, of course, the big island. Uh, mm-hmm. So I always have that in the back of my head. And like, whenever I do anything outdoors here in Stockholm, or if I'm just training at the gym, uh, then it's always there, sort of itching. <laughs> <laughs> I want to ask you about some of these other really long projects that you've had. Um, Mm -hmm. but before that you mentioned something you you said like from that first day of climbing at age 16 and that Mm -hmm. makes me really curious do you remember your first day of climbing and can you describe it (laughs) (laughs) I do actually Um, I guess it was shortly before my 16th birthday uh, and I kind of hated climbing (laughs) okay (laughs) I mean I was I was uh, very I wasn't very athletic so to speak And uh, I had a very hard time at the climbing gym, um, actually getting up anything. And it was kind of annoying because my brother was so much better than like at it than I was. Uh, He'd been climbing for about two months before. And uh, so I was like, you know, getting a bit competitive and just thinking, man, this sport is dumb. I don't like this. Uh, So I actually didn't start climbing for about two months. Uh, So I tried it once. And then two months later, I tagged along one more time just to do some just to work out a little bit. Um, Cause I was playing a lot of video games at the time, just pretty much sitting at home all day long playing uh, playing computer games. Um, but then I was kind of cursed to just going there. And yeah, I tagged along. And then after about three or four times of climbing, I got insanely hooked. Uh, and I started, you know, going there pretty much daily, maybe every other day or so, uh, having really long sessions and just getting obsessed more and more so uh, by the day. Um, so that was my first, yeah, first experience with climbing. And I think it was the progression part that actually hit the hardest. The fact that when you start out the first time, you usually can't do anything above V0, uh, or at least that's how it was for me. But then pretty much every session was a new lesson and, and I learned something that helped me improve. Uh, and from that point on, it just kept on going and snowballing. So like focusing on progression helped me a lot in the beginning, which made me more and more psyched, which helped me evolve naturally. Mm. Um, so that was my first, yeah, first experience with climbing <laughs> way back when. Way back when. <laughs> when you were describing your goals, you're talking about, you know, like your first, you know, 7C, so V9 for us uh, Americans, and then you want to do 10 of them, and then you want to do your first 8A or V11, and then you want to do 10 of them. That's really, really smart. And that's something that 
a lot of people screw up. I'm, I'm wondering where you learned that, you know, to focus on leveling up your difficulty, but then expanding your, um, I guess, just becoming a more, you know, well-rounded climber at that difficulty and really establishing it and building out that base and kind of going back and forth. Is that something you just made up on your own? Where did that come from? I think a big part of it is I, I have the same engineering background. I studied uh, like computer engineering, okay. where a lot of it is about being systematical and just planning each step out. And I think I found just like getting a bigger base would help me like in the next step. So not really fumbling through it and just making sure that every step is done correctly uh, was something that I that was kind of in my mind all the time uh, because it was what I studied. And I do think that had some impact on it um, as well as the fact that I I think it was easier to see progression in that way as well. Like if, if I was climbing one V9, I had to do more to actually be able to like to define the fact that I could do a V9 for myself. Like the, otherwise it was just a boulder that happened to be V9. But once you've done 10 or 20 of them, then you're a lot more established in that grade. Uh, so I felt like before I could even, before I could say that I'd done a V9, I think I felt like I had to do like a lot of them mm. before I felt that that was my character as a climber. Yeah. 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 That's cool. That makes sense. Yeah. That's a cool way of <laughs> thinking about it. Okay. I want to dig into another of these really epic projects. Uh, can you tell me about the queen mother? Oh, <laughs> Uh, yes, my biggest obsession <laughs> in life, pretty much. <laughs> uh, okay, so where to start? Where to start? The Queen Mother is kind of like the Big Island was, but situated in Stockholm. And this was both good and bad. It's a 20 move long boulder graded AP, which consists of a 7C plus, like pinchy crack climb. Um, that goes into an 8A compression test piece with a 7C or V9 or V10 maybe, somewhere around there, uh, crux at the end. So it's like the definition of power endurance, uh, <laughs> of a power endurance boulder, um, which made it very, very accessible to work on from, a, like from when I was maybe climbing around V8, V9, because all the moves were possible. Like the end part fitted me very well, the V9, V10. So I could do that one quite quickly. Um, and the rest of the moves are easier, but you know, when you've added them, the entire line becomes very fatiguing. And uh, so that was the thing. It, it became an obsession in the sense that I could actually do all the moves from pretty much day one of trying it, but linking everything together was near impossible. Uh, so what I had to do was just orient my entire life around uh, training towards this specific boulder and getting the fitness required to to link everything together. And after not very long, I managed to do the sit start, like the 8A version, um, which is like the halfway point as my first 8A. And on the same week, I managed to do the 7C plus crack that goes into it, which meant that I had two link ups in total, uh, the 7C plus and the 8A that I had to sort of merge together. And uh, this is where the story sort of really became a bit uh, obsessive because I think, I think I fell at the last move, which is the V10 part that's quite hard, around my second session. 
Oh, wow. On the full AP line. And I hadn't done 8A+. I'd done like 1 8A, 1 B11 before that B13, maybe two. Yeah. Uh, and I was just like, okay, but it's still possible. I got to push it. I got to push it so I can do this because this is like, um, it's quite, quite the famous line in Stockholm as well. Definitely a benchmark. Um, we don't have a lot of B13s around Stockholm. So like the ones we have are quite famous among the community. Yeah. It also looks really good. It looks like a really nice line. It climbs incredibly well. I got to say it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's so enjoyable that even if I've done it, I wouldn't mind repeating it like 10 times, uh, <laughs> because it just feels good to climb it. That's awesome. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but the thing was that because I fell at the last move, I was, I was a bit naive and thinking that, you know, I can do this. I can do this any day now. And what happened was that I spent literally a year and a half going out to this crag like as often as I possibly could. Uh, so I was studying engineering and what I would do was just skip lectures, go out climbing, go home, study late at night, uh, you know, just so I could be there during the day when it was, uh, when it was okay to climb. Um, and I would go out there literally any day of the week, even during winter, even during Christmas, during all conditions, it didn't matter as long as the holds were dry and it was possible to climb on it, I would go there. Um, I remember that it was actually one specific session which was the most gruesome one that I've ever had. <laughs> and it was minus 25 degrees Celsius, which is minus four degrees Fahrenheit, Oof. I believe. Um, so literally like so cold that my fingers would freeze if I stood still. And it's a pretty long boulder, as you can tell. And we don't really stash pads so often here around Stockholm. So what I did was I put four pads stacked on my back, two on the side, uh, like the climbing shoes on the front of my body, and just ran towards the boulder, tossed down the pads, took like a two-kilometer sprint back and forth just to get some heat in, tossed the shoes on, like took off my shirt, one bird with everything I had, <laughs> fell down, 22-kilometer sprint again, one more go and then go back home. And <laughs> I'm never going to forget that session uh, because it was just, I was a bit euphoric during it because just like it felt so good to have, to have an obsession in that way, to have something that you just really, really, really can't go without. Like you have to go uh, climb it even if it's just the lousiest of conditions possible. Um, and I found that very just inspiring for myself if i can say that yeah i just found, found it really cool to care about doing something so much um and so i kept on going it kept on going and then the funny thing is I, it becomes that the big thing at the end was that it was purely a mental battle um i'd like i'd fallen off the top move maybe 100 times maybe more um of this 20 move boulder and I was at my wits end with like trying it. Um, so I'd been on it on the perfect sessions where everything was crisp and I'd had the perfect warm up, and there was nothing wrong and it still didn't go. And then this one day I was, uh, I was having a rest day. I'd had maybe two or three days on and I was a bit tired, but uh, a friend of mine was like, ah, let's head outside and climb some something. Uh, and on, on the way out, we said like, okay, which crag do we go to? And then we decided to just go to the Queen Mother um, just 
to do some training because he wanted to do the top part of it. And I was like, okay, I can work on the moves again just to prepare for another session. And uh, so I had no expectations whatsoever. And well, wouldn't you know, that's the session when it actually goes. <laughs> Out of nowhere, first go, hop on it, and it felt, it felt easy on that session. Wow. And I'd be struggling so, 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 so much for like, what is it, two years at the time maybe? Hmm. And then it just kind of, kind of went. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that fascinating how that works? That's such a yeah. common story and it's, it's just, it, it never makes sense, but it does make sense. It's, yeah, that's so interesting. Yep, yeah. <laughs> but it's like ex expectations can be so limiting in a way because mm. that was the thing before I'd always expected to do it because I knew I was a little bit stronger than the session before and I had the temps a little bit more on my side. Um, but then, yeah, suddenly it went <laughs> when I didn't expect it. It's really cool what you said about being out there on that really gnarly negative four degree Fahrenheit day and feeling kind of inspired by yourself. I, I really like that. I can actually relate to that. Like this feeling of like, cool, I'm out here. And that means that I'm like willing to do whatever it takes to get this thing done. Mm. There, there's something mm. really empowering about going out there when it's, when, when everyone else thinks you're crazy. <laughs> yeah. 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 That's really cool. I'm, I'm curious how you think about that whole process in hindsight, you've, you've done the boulder now, you've grown a lot as a climber. Did that process, like, did you get stronger trying the boulder as much as you did? Um, do you think that time was well spent based on the lessons that you learned from that process? Would you do it differently if you could go back? Like, how do you think about that whole process looking back on it now? So looking back, I think it was probably one of the things that improved me the most as a climber. Um, mm. And I actually long for the same obsession. And I have it in some parts. I have it with the Big Island and I have it um, with World Cups, actually. The way I'm training for them has, the, has a similar obsession to it. Um, but the fuel I had for training when I was working on the Queen Mother was just insane. The thing that wasn't so good was that I was focusing on maybe not the best things to improve as a climber. I was, I was purely focusing on that boulder, which uh, made it like I, I neglected my finger strength quite a bit because I had the pin strength and the, yeah, and that kind of stuff. So I was pretty much just working on physical capabilities um, of just being stronger in my uh, pulling parts and like mm. things that weren't so relevant for me to progress as a climber. Um, I did, however, fuel my training for two years in a way that's that I haven't really met again, but just not maybe in the right form. Like I could have done it, I could have improved as a climber by such an immense degree if I'd been focusing on the right things instead. However, what I will say is that whatever fuels your training is what fuels your training and you can't really decide if you should be working on something else. I mean, if, if say you have weak fingers, for instance, then of course it's good to work on your finger strength, but if you're not motivated to do so, then what's the point, you know? Like you still have to, like it's it's good to push through in some parts, but I still think it's very, you should never neglect the fact that what you're psyched on is what gives you a lot of energy. Um, and in the end, climbing is a lot about just having much energy output and, and just training and, and doing it a lot. So while I do think it's always very, very valuable to work on your weaknesses, what should always come first is psych and motivation. And I had 
an endless amount of that during my my time on, on the queen mother <laughs> so yeah so yeah <laughs> i like that i like that a lot uh earlier when we were talking about the big island you have this you know similar obsession with this new project now you said something interesting i think you said it's a good thing that it's so far away can you elaborate on that why do you feel why do you feel that's been important well, that's the thing, because because it's so far away and because I can't try, try it every other day, I'm not purely working on that specific strength that I need for the big island. It's just, it's more of like an idea that I'm focused on. It's, it's, uh, it's an idea of climbing something and I can apply that idea to any boulders. So I can apply it to the, the crimpy boulders we have here in our gyms, for instance. Uh, while as with the Queen Mother, I had to focus on my power endurance and that was everything that I cared about. So I, I neglected the other things. But with the Big Island, like once I start approaching the, the time when I'm actually going to travel there, I'm sure I'm going to focus on it a ton, like that specific strength that I need to do it. Uh, I actually did focus on it a ton before the second time I went to it. So I set a replica in my gym and I trained on that a bunch uh, to just, uh, yeah, to get the strength required for that specific boulder. Um, but the rest of the time, the rest of the year, it was purely the idea of climbing that boulder that was my fuel. And the idea of climbing that boulder didn't include training specifically for it. It included more just training, <laughs> just psych and, and motivation for to get stronger. So you had that as fuel, but you were focusing your training more on the things that were making you the best climber you could be rather than just hammering those specific needs for that climb. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Um, <laughs> back to the Queen Mother, you made this film documenting uh, your brother's process, which I thought mm. was really cool. So you you had this great journey with this climb. You eventually did the climb, but you didn't really document your own process. Um, but you have this chance to kind of do it in hindsight and, and film your brother working on it. Uh, tell me about Felix. Uh, you said some interesting things in that film <laughs> that I want to ask you about. But um, But yeah, tell me about your brother. My brother is uh, one of the best, like people in the world. <laughs> He's a uh, yeah, yeah. I I absolutely love him, and we've gone through our like we've gone through climbing together. He, as I mentioned earlier, he started two months before me, and ever since we've both been equally obsessed. Uh, he's gone through a few injuries, uh, quite a ton of injuries, and he's progressed through them, and he's like kept his motivation up even during the low times. And has been a huge inspiration for me as a, well, as a climber and as a person. And, uh, well, like when I was shooting that video, I was just, as you mentioned, I always wanted to, to document my process on it. And uh, I finally had the chance to do it with him. And I was, I just wanted to get the chance to, yeah, to present his motivation as well, because it's, it's a bit astonishing. It's, it's similar to mine, but like, he pushes, he perseveres even more than, than I do, I would say. Um, and I really wish I could record a little bit more of it when he gets closer on the boulder because he, yeah, he's, uh, he's a very passionate climber, um, with just pure dedication. And I, I want to, I want to get as much of that on video as possible and just document it as much as possible because, uh, to me, it's extremely inspiring and I feel like it could be for, for others as well. Hmm. Yeah, that's what I wanted to ask you about, actually. You said that he was one of your biggest inspirations in climbing, and it was really his mindset. And I, I was curious, like, what is it about 
his mindset or his approach to his own climbing that, that really inspires you? So I guess the biggest thing, or one of the big things is that whenever, whenever he gets injured, it's not like that. He, he gets a bit sad about it and it gets in his way, but he just keeps on grinding until he's back on track and can climb again. And he never actually stops that motivation and that drive. But for me, it can be a bit different. I can, I can get a little bit like sloppy and stop training a little bit if I get injured and not do all the right things um, in the same way that he does. And for me, that's like one of the most inspiring things you can do as a climber is to just keep on grinding when, when it feels, when it doesn't feel right, when it doesn't feel like you, you can. Um, so I think that's one of the big things is that he's just, it's just the definition of determination in, in, uh, in the grind what, that is climbing. Um, so like whenever I have, whenever I have ups, I can, keep on, I can keep on training, I can keep on climbing, I can keep on going when I feel good and I feel psyched. Uh, but whenever I'm not psyched, it's not the same for me. Like then I, I can just, I take a few steps back, I might, you know, drop my goals a little bit, not focus on them as much. But he, he never does. He just keeps on, keeps on keeping on. <laughs> Mm, mm. So yeah, that's the big thing. Can you tell me what uh, Swiss recruitment is for the Swiss style <laughs> of projecting? <laughs> yeah, right. We mentioned that in the video, I recall. I guess we didn't elaborate so much. So the thing is, um, when, when, he, when he was in Magicwood for the first time, he got pretty inspired by how they approach uh, projecting. Uh, and the way they do it is that they, they find a project and then they just kind of, not everyone, of course, but a lot of climbers, it seemed, at least the very strong ones, would just like find a boulder and then pretty much just hang from each position of the boulder as like a climbing session. Maybe not even try any of the moves. They would just go to the boulder, go to the holds and just hang on them. Pretty much like when, when you're doing a dead hanging session of a hangboard uh, to just recruit <laughs> all the muscles. And that was it. That was like the session. They didn't even have to move off the boulder. It was just like, go there hang from the holds, and then, you know, you're happy. That was a good sesh. <laughs> and it's a pretty interesting approach, actually, that I've adapted here and there. And it is surprisingly uh, beneficial towards projecting because you can actually, mm. you can get so much out of it by just hanging off the holds that, that you want to climb on. Because um, usually once you can establish of each position on the boulder, you can usually start linking it together as well. And the more recruited you are in those muscles, the easier it gets. Uh, so it's been, yeah, it actually works quite well for proper, proper climbing as well. It's fascinating. It, I actually, I'd seen it before. It was really fun to see that in your film. And I'm like, oh, I had a friend at Smith Rock <laughs> who would go up a project, you know, let's say he's trying a 514 for the first time or something, or, or mm. even like the 20th time, whatever. But if he was having a hard time with a move, he would end his session by just going up to that move and just grabbing the two holds and like pulling into the position and just holding like an isometric yeah. uh, for you know, three, <laughs> three to five seconds or whatever, and then just let go and, and fall on the rope. He wouldn't even try the move. He'd just hold the positions. And yeah, I had never seen that before at the time and I still haven't really tried it, but it makes sense. It's, it's, uh, it's intriguing. How have you mixed that in to your, to your climbing or training? I've mainly done it on outdoor boulders that I've tried to just like hold a position for, because usually the thing is um, on some boulders, I've noticed that I can, I can hang in a position for like three to five seconds at most. And then I just 
fall right off. And then I tried applying, applying that method on the same move and I would hang on it for like first five seconds and then rest for like a minute and then suddenly I could do it for seven rest for a minute and then suddenly I can do it for 10 or 15 and after I'd been done it for like once I'd increased my hanging time by about three times it was like incredibly much easier to hold that position when I was actually doing moves of it um, so I think you can apply it to pretty much any hard position that you have on a boulder that feels rough to hang on were you seeing that kind of time improvement within one session yeah, yeah literally within minutes like i could do it on, wow yeah, yeah yeah that was the cool thing so like, you're just you're just recruiting you're just like teaching your body like how to recruit for that move exactly and i think you can yeah. you can stretch it probably i think that's i guess what he saw in magic wood is that some people would you know take it two steps further and, and hang for like an entire session come back the next day and then just cruise the moves and um, wow so I'm sure that's going to be like one of the cutting edge techniques used in in, uh, in bouldering in a few years. Like once people start, yeah, start noticing how much it can help. <laughs> <laughs> the Swiss are onto something. Yeah. <clears throat> how did you get into YouTubing and making films? Um, so I guess uh, the starting point was that I filmed with Eric Carlson. Uh, okay. On his YouTube channel for a few years. Um, and then we started a company together, sold clothes and made videos and just, yeah, did some fun stuff together. Uh, but after a while, we decided to call that quits and I started my own channel. Because um, I wanted to get a lot more outdoor content out there in the world. Because I was missing out on a few just logs and that kind of stuff from boulders around the world. Usually, I guess the big thing is I've seen a lot of videos that are kind of you know, uncut footage and, and, and stacked boulders in a video. And I find that very nice when I'm going to a specific area. Like if I'm going to, to uh, RMMP, for instance, then I, I might look at, at uh, like a video of, of Whispers of Wisdom or stuff like that uh, and get really psyched for that specific boulder. But it isn't quite as motivating for me to just go outdoors if I wasn't going to that specific area. Then I'm much more motivated by just people enjoying their time out on a boulder and just sessioning on it and stuff like that. Uh, and so the videos were supposed to be that from the get-go, just us having fun out in, in nature. Um, because most of the videos, or pretty much all the videos I'd recorded before that were uh, indoor climbing videos, um, which is what I've been doing with, with Eric. And I, I, I do that on my channel as well. I find it really enjoyable. Um, but in the beginning of my channel, it was I was purely focused on outdoor climbing. And now it's morphed into all kinds of different things that I feel inspired to do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, including some fun collaborations and challenges and things. Yeah, exactly. But you're doing an amazing job. I really want to commend you and compliment <laughs> you. It's, it's interesting because I never would have thought that I would enjoy watching other people climb outdoors mm. and, and just have a session or climb, climb indoors. Like, why would I want to watch other people <laughs> boulder inside um but it's kind of like podcasting like why would i want to sit down and listen to mm. a two-hour conversation between two people i don't know about boulders i've never tried you know mm. like somehow it's fascinating yeah. and i don't totally understand why but <laughs> you've really you've really done something cool where it's really it gives people an opportunity including myself like 
I get to learn from you and kind of have you as a mentor as I watch you try the big island and, and break down how you're thinking about your session and how you're thinking about your next attempt and your goals for the session and hmm. why you're calling it quits and what your plan is for the next session. Like there's so much that people can learn from that and just kind of soak in just from watching you go about it. And and you're right, like it, it really made me want to go. I was like, man, do I need to cancel one of my sport climbing trips to go back to Leavenworth <laughs> to boulder this fall. Like it made me really psyched to go try a really hard boulder that I've always wanted to do. And um, I don't have that same feeling when I'm watching a beta video, you know, mm. when I watch someone crush something or if I watch their highlight reel from a trip or whatever. So yeah, yeah it's a really cool thing that you're doing. I, I really enjoy it. Thank you. I really appreciate you saying so. That actually warms my yeah. heart to hear. It's like, yeah. that's, that's great. Um, I'm curious, does it feel like work when, when we were talking at the start of this call and kind of setting up and sound and things, you were talking about like how stressful it can be when something always goes wrong and the audio is not working or whatever mm. else. Is it, is it fun for you to make the films? Is it, does it feel like work? Is it stressful? Uh, both yes and no. Like I love, really, really, truly love making videos. And I think when things aren't the way I want them to be, it's a bit, it's, it's stressful. Yeah, it is. And it's not as enjoyable. Uh, it's actually a funny, funny thing. Second session on the big island, I'd forgotten to charge the batteries in the camera. And like, I freaked out. Like, I've never gotten so pissed off at myself, I think, in my entire life. Because I really wanted wow. to record that session. And I wanted to just uh, keep that memory on, on footage. Um, we managed to solve it through some like uh, ex external batteries and stuff like that. Um, or uh, what's the word, like power banks. But the, the second that I realized that I'd forgotten to charge the batteries, I was like, man, I suck as a person. And I, I was like, <laughs> I really took it so hard. And I was surprised wow. by myself afterwards that I gotten, because yeah, that I gotten so, you know, messed up from it. Because it's, I mean, in the end, it's like, go home, grab the, like charge them or go there another session or anything like that. But I was, yeah, I was quite obsessed about capturing that moment. And then it gets stressful if I can't actually perform or if I can't get the things that I want. Mm. That being said, it's it's always all worth it. And I don't view it, I, I guess I try to view it as work as much as possible. So I don't overdo anything. Um, because I do work mm. as, as a chief root setter in the gym here as well. And I make videos and I've been studying a little bit and doing a little bit of everything. Uh, as well as planning for the trip this fall. And I've had a pretty busy life for the past two years or so. Um, and I think even though it's like I'm doing a lot of fun things that I thoroughly enjoy, it's important to take a step back. At least that's how I feel sometimes. And mm -hmm. I just view how much time you're spending on something and what you actually need. Because uh, I can definitely notice that I can get worn out a bit if I'm... Say, say that I work at the gym from nine to five, come back home and then edit a video until 1 a.m. And I do that every day for, uh, for a week. I mean, that I've slept wow. like six hours every night and I've trained in the middle of that. And even though I still enjoy it every day and I can keep on going, it's not the best thing for me always. And then I have to take, take a step back and think like, okay, well, I shouldn't be working or like using my, my mind and body for... 17 hours a day for a week that's not good for for anyone i feel like uh mm -hmm. and then i start viewing it more as work and thinking okay how do i distribute it in a way that actually um that's sustainable you know mm. yeah 
Uh, that's yeah. Thanks for sharing that. That's that gives me a lot to think about myself. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's hard when you. I mean, it's the best thing in the world when you get to do something that you love, but mm. it is a lot harder to to keep those clear boundaries. Yep. I, I find that this working on this and working on things that are connected to the podcast, like they can really creep into every spare minute of my life if I'm not careful about that. So yeah, yeah. I imagine the videos are even more time consuming. So yeah, that's, thanks for sharing that. I'm curious, <laughs> is it something that you hope to become your main source of income? Are you making money from it? Does it feel like it's gonna be a viable career for you? Uh, actually it does, I'm uh, in a way, I'm doing that now with the trip. I'll be that, that's that'll, awesome. That'll be my only source of income for the trip. Uh, I will say though that it's not like I make a ton of money on YouTube, not in any way, shape, or form. <laughs> uh -huh. um, but if I yeah. produced more videos and they did roughly as good as they do or slightly better, then I'd actually make enough to survive on it as like a, I guess, a low end type of salary, but still a salary that's sustainable. You know. Um, yeah. And I guess what I'm shooting for is is to focus purely on climbing and and like filming climbing and and this life for at least six months, maybe a year. Um, I mentioned earlier that I studied computer engineering, so I do have that as my backup plan because I have like two or three years left of studying, three years left mm. of studying. So I could always go back to that um, and finish my my master's degree, um, which is kind of like a nice thing to fall back on if I need to but for the time being it feels more motivating to focus on climbing and making making videos that's awesome I'm excited for you <laughs> thank you I, I imagine it must be difficult to bring your full focus to your climbing while capturing all of that on the same day you know a lot of your project sessions or training sessions you're also filming mm. how do you balance those two things when you're out there at the big island and you're really you know, you're really trying to focus and, and have a good productive session. Mm -hmm. How do you balance those things? I think, uh, I think I'm quite blessed in that way that it actually doesn't affect me negatively to film always. Okay. Most often it's, it's more motivating than anything else. And I, I, I think I try, I don't, I don't really try harder, but I do perform better quite often on camera. Um, so in the end it's a, it's a plus having the camera on. Um, and I feel like whenever I, I'm not in the mood, whenever I feel like, okay, this is not going to help my climbing in any way, and I turn the camera off and that's what... I try not to turn the camera off actually because I, I find it important to capture the good and the bad. Um, mm. But if it's a really, if it's just not a good day in any way and I feel like the footage is not going to be good and I don't want to focus on that, then yeah, the camera is left in the bag. Um, so I, it's like... Most often it's positive and when it's not, I try to record it and if it really doesn't, like, if I don't even capture anything that's that's worth presenting, then the camera's left, yeah, somewhere else, yeah. It's the, the great thing about being your own boss, you get to decide <laughs> <laughs> when, you, when you pull the camera out. Yeah, for sure. Okay, I want to dig into some of your... Uh, some of your history with training and some of the things that you've learned having started later in life and progressing as much as you have. And, you know, what anyone who's seen your channel, 
You've gotten incredibly strong. Uh, you're incredibly strong in very specific ways. You're, in, <laughs> you know, you're incredible at one arm pull ups. You can do one arm pull ups on just about anything that people can hang on to, uh, which is really fun. I want to ask you about that. But I'm curious. You know, there, there's like fun challenges and kind of like party trick things that are just like really fun and inspiring on the camera. Um, I'm I'm wondering what are some of the most important strengthening focuses or exercises that have really helped your climbing over the years uh, versus like which ones are just kind of fun and party tricks that don't necessarily help your climbing? Oof. This is always a tricky question for me because it's, I don't want to, <laughs> you know, I, I like, uh, so I'll start off. I released a video earlier this year about hangboarding two times per day. Uh, yes. That went pretty viral and I've gotten, I don't know, hundreds of messages at the very least about it and what it's really I, funny like it might be the most controversial hangboard program <laughs> on the internet which i which i find hilarious like i've i've tried it and i'm like i think it helped like yeah. either try it or don't why are people arguing about it on reddit and that's the thing like it was it was a case study with a sample size of two two climbers with pretty like relatively weak fingers and it just kind of worked for them me and my brother that is and suddenly it became this thing that was like, you know, some people saying that it's the holy grail of finger strength and some people going like, <laughs> you're insane for sharing this. This makes no sense. Progressive overload, yada, 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 et cetera, et cetera. And for me, I was just like, okay, I really, 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 really tried to be careful and, and say like, we have a sample slice of one. Do not take any of what I say to heart. It's more like, play around with the idea that having more constant stimulus of your fingers is good. That was it. But don't take anything like to heart, uh, which failed miserably <laughs> because a lot of people <laughs> <laughs> have tried it, have gotten bad, have gotten good results. And I've heard everything from, from, you know, best thing ever to horrible. And it pulled my bullies. So it's like, Wow. Yeah, and it, for me, it's a bit heartbreaking because I, whenever I hear somebody getting injured, for example, from from it, it's I I, I can't help but feel a bit responsible. Um, mm. I mean, I know that people are of course accountable for their own actions, but it's still something that I presented to the world and that ha can possibly have affected someone in a really negative way. And I mean, I I still do the program quite often, and I find it extremely beneficial for me. But that's the thing for me <laughs> not for everyone mm. so whenever i talk about training i just want to start off by mentioning that what i say is so far away from being you know the truth and the thing that everyone should know and that like what helped me progress as a climber it's more just things that i found somewhat helpful for my specific body type with my specific set of of uh skills and like what i had before so there that's out mm. of the way now let's get into the the good stuff the caveat yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> um, i mean to your credit i think you did a i think you did an excellent job of framing it with those caveats in your video and you know that's just it's just the internet being the internet you know, people are gonna <laughs> people are gonna do that so i don't know i i think you did a good job of that and kind of covered your bases and you know a lot of people including myself i tried it and i got good benefits from it and um I actually did a second round of it. Mm -hmm. uh, I changed my grips. I changed the the loading a little bit and did a second round. And I continued to make progress in mm -hmm. some of my grips, in my open hand grips. 
So I think there's something interesting about like, you know, tendon thickening or tendon health or tendon strengthening. Mm. And what was interesting is that my crimp grips uh, improved a lot the first round, but then they didn't improve anymore on the second round. And my, my yeah. crimp and half crimp actually started to feel a little creaky. Like my fingers started to feel ah, okay. stiff. And so yeah. I stopped doing those, but yeah. yeah, I mean, I don't know. I played with it. I learned a lot. Um, and yeah, I think you did a good job of sharing caveats. So anyway, <laughs> <laughs> thank you. I appreciate that. Um, <laughs> but actually, before we move on, would you mind describing the protocol quickly for people that haven't seen the video? Okay. I'll, I'll share the video in the show notes for people, but um, yeah. maybe just a quick overview. Yeah, I guess uh, to like the initial program was that you would do um, hangboarding sessions two times per day, um, but without actually letting go of your feet on the ground. So you would do 10 minutes of, of hanging with 10 seconds on, on different type of holds, and then 50 seconds off. And I would repeat that for, for 10 minutes, meaning 100 seconds of, well, hanging, but not hanging in total. Uh, so essentially, when I was holding the half crimp, I would maybe let go of like 70 to 80% of my body weight. And when I was holding pockets or smaller holds, maybe I would release like 40 to 50% of my body weight. Uh, while if I tried hard, I could do maybe 150% of my body weight in total. So mm. I would reduce the load by quite a bit and uh, do that two times per day for, and I did that for 30 days. And my results were literally insane. And I was genuine, I've genuinely never been so shocked about any form of training that I've done in my entire life which is also why I wanted to present it. But um, as I mentioned, it's like, it's definitely not for everyone. Like I had pretty, relative to my bouldering grade, applied on the wall, I had fairly strong fingers. Like when I was doing, uh, when I was just regular, a regular climber doing boulders, uh, I definitely wouldn't describe myself as the guy with the weakest fingers always. I used to be very weak at them, but I've gotten stronger. Um, but on a hangboard, I've always been quite, yeah, quite bad, I'd say, <laughs> at least compared to, okay. to others that climb roughly the same grades. Um, but from this protocol, I actually started to transfer my climbing finger strength to the hangboard. And what was the reason behind that? I do not know. And, and like, it's hard for me to dig into because I would need someone way more knowledgeable than me to do so mm. with confidence. Yeah. Um, Real quickly, one of the biggest questions I had was, you know, you, you did make these amazing improvements in that month of training on the hangboard, on the hangboard itself. Did you notice a difference in your climbing? So the thing that I noticed in my climbing was that I had, an in, like my fingers have never felt so healthy uh, mm. as they did when I did it two times per day, which consequently made me just pull harder for longer during sessions, uh, mm. which I think is the big thing why I got stronger fingers is that I could climb for longer. I could perform for longer and it didn't it didn't feel tweaky it didn't hurt in any way and they just felt solid you know you know when you have one of those sessions where it feels like your fingers are indestructible that's sort of how it felt during i guess pretty much every session um which is why i kept on going it's like it just felt better and better the more i did it uh so yeah that was the thing it did it didn't directly transfer to pure finger strength it was not like my highest form of finger strength increased that I noticed so clearly. But I noticed that I always had strong fingers. There wasn't any day, day of the week where I would go in and not be able to like really crimp or pull hard on holds. Like I could do it every single day. Um, 
And I've, thinking, I've been thinking about making a new video discussing this specific subject because I think that was the biggest key to it all. It's just the fact that I could apply, um, apply my, my fingers more during more sessions, which of course is where you get progressive overload. If, like, mm. if you can trade them more, then yeah, of course you're going to get stronger. Um, so and I think that was a, Go ahead. No, and I think that was the big part of why I got stronger on the hangboard is that I could just keep on loading my fingers more and more. Um, yeah. So maybe it was acting as like a really good active recovery protocol that's allowing you to do more hard finger training on the actual climbing wall in your bouldering sessions. Exactly. Exactly. Because like that's so interesting. Yeah. Because yeah. that, so that was the thing. Like my my protocol or my training protocol in in general, like my my usual training, my usual bouldering was exactly the same. Like if you took December and compared it to January, it was pretty much the exact same month of training. There was no like uh, um, periodized training or anything that would affect my performance, aside from the fact that I added the hangboarding session two times per day. Like that was the only difference that I made in my in my uh, schedule. The thing is that you always have this factor of how how your climbing sessions are, which is where your strength really comes from in the end. As a climber, like you don't you don't get to become a good climber and a stronger climber by hanging on a board or doing you know stuff that isn't climbing. The majority of your strengths are going to come from your climbing, and so if you can increase the amount of force you can like have as an output during each session then that's how you get stronger and i think the protocol just made all of those sessions 30 percent more valuable or whatever percentage mm. you want to throw at it but like they made each session more uh intense without actually without me having to push harder without me having to try harder it was just there because the fingers were healthier that's how i wow how i feel that makes a lot of sense yeah that's so interesting hmm. Okay, but I feel like this was all a tangent. You were you yeah. were giving caveats <laughs> after I answered yeah. or asked you that question about uh, strengthening exercises and which ones translate best to your climbing. But you you kind of just answered it. I mean, it sounds like you really believe that most of your specific climbing strength comes from time on the wall from from doing hard climbing. A hundred percent. I think what I will mention is that different climbing related exercises are were extremely beneficial for me and still are to this day. Uh, one of my favorite ones is the four by four. Um, so doing like four boulders four times in a row um, and then resting for like four minutes, four, five minutes, uh, rinse and repeat until you're done uh, has been very, very good for me throughout the years. And I, I pretty much always do it when I'm having like a session where I have a hard time motivating myself or pushing on like a specific project or anything like that. I'll just do the four by four and I'll get fatigued quite quickly and I'll have a good session pretty much whatever happens because you can adjust it to whatever level you're at during that specific day. It doesn't actually matter if you're, if you're more tired than any other day because you can just decrease the level. But if you're if you're doing like regular bouldering or regular sport climbing, I feel like most people will opt for trying their max grade or trying a project and just wanting to do that, which usually I think is really good as a method for improving as a climber. But if you're having an off day or if you're feeling weaker than usual, then that's not really going to help you. It's just going to be like... Uh, I don't really have a good word for it in English. We call it melamjölka. Like... That, that it's like 
when you don't actually try hard enough to have any any progressive overload or any like proper training you're just kind mm. of you're just kind of uh, in limbo with training uh and i think those sessions are the ones that are they're good for maintenance but they're not good for getting stronger um and so finding these methods for like okay i don't feel very good today what can i do all right i'm gonna climb every single boulder up to v5 as fast as i possibly can or i'm gonna try to climb every v6 in the gym with perfect technique um and stuff like that, just applying those little games to regular bouldering sessions that aren't as good as they usually are is something that I feel have helped me a lot as a climber. Um, and there, I guess we could discuss stuff that I've done in the gym that I felt are beneficial. Um, but I do want to go back to the point where I talked about the fact that it's, <laughs> I think it's very different for each individual. Like me, for instance, I build upper body power like very easily i'd say uh compared to a lot of other climbers um but i have a harder time for instance working on like having a sustained core so you know doing doing exercises like the is it called the planche when you're just on your arms like tensing your core um plank plank yeah uh stuff like that is i've always been a lot weaker at than than the others and so it's like if i were to to say what my program for getting stronger would be it would definitely not transfer to somebody else's because i've had to do a lot of different exercises and i think the big thing about training it for climbing is you have to find what are your specific strengths and do you want to improve those or do you want to improve your weaknesses and i've for a very long time have always opted for improving my strengths actually and then focused on my weaknesses in climbing so what I would do is I would do a lot of power exercises in the gym, like pulling exercises, weighted pull-ups, uh, one-arm pull-ups, um, yeah, pretty much anything you can think of to get stronger there because it was very motivating for me. It was easier to work on. It was easier, it was easier to feel that progression. Um, but in terms of finger strength, I would focus on climbing crimpier boulders because I was quite weak in my fingers for the first few years of my climbing. And having those two sort of work in in a symbiosis and just like separate <laughs> those in a way so so that I, I was always working on my strengths in one part of my training and then working on my weaknesses in another and usually those weaknesses were focused on in my climbing because usually when you hop on a boulder you're going to use your strengths to do it like if you're strong at pinching, you're most likely not gonna, or say, say you're good at slopers, for instance, that's a perfect example. Like people who are good at slopers are always gonna have their, their hand on the sloper and it's gonna look very, you know, slopery. <laughs> but if you have people who are, <laughs> but if you have people who are like very good at crimping, they're also very often gonna opt for full crimping a sloper. And you especially see these, this in like the high-end climbers that have developed a very specific strength and a very specific skill there. And I feel like, working on on your strengths so it's beneficial and if you do that it's going to get applied to your climbing regardless so then it's better to focus on your weaknesses with climbing um so yeah i digress but that was like the yeah I, i'm just curious how you <clears throat> how you structure these things in your week and in your training sessions as someone who has an engineering background um i have a hard time letting go of having a system, having a plan, having everything written out. And I, I'm learning, I think that that actually, I think has hindered me a lot because, 
you know, you're, you're, we're not robots, so we're not always going to feel how we want to feel for a, a given session that we have on our calendar. Yeah. And I think it's just slowly kind of eroded my passion for improving and in, in training a little bit, you know, like I, I think I would have a lot more fun just doing whatever sounded interesting and fun and still productive that day, you know, like doing whatever training exercise felt like the thing that I, I want to do, but I have a hard time with that. And I'm curious, do you plan all this out when you're talking about different strengthening exercises in the gym, whether that's, you know, how you're mm. doing your weighted pull-ups or whether you're doing one arms or whether you're doing one arms on like a weird grip implement. Mm. Um, and then these, you know, these other sessions, like your four by fours and your climb all the V sixes with perfect technique. Like, are you, are you structuring all that stuff or do you just kind of go intuitive, whatever you feel like doing? Uh, a, a bit of column A and a bit of column B. I, okay. I try and structure everything in a very vague way. So I know sort of what to do, but I still think like for me, when I'm psyched, I can perform at such a higher level that it's almost ridiculous. Um, if I'm motivated to do something, it's, it's going to happen and then I'm going to do it and I'm going to, yeah, try harder. Um, but if not motivated, it's much harder for me. And I think we have a lot of different personalities there. Uh, so like some people are, are better at just going in, doing the grind, and that's their method for, for getting stronger. Uh, personally, that doesn't work at all. Like if I have a, like if I have a structured training schedule in the way that I like every exercise is performed at this minute with this interval, and these are the things that I'm going to do this specific day, then I got to be motivated to do that. I got to be motivated to do that schedule, but I'm not just gonna, it, it, if I'm not motivated, then the entire system breaks down and falls apart. And usually like, I don't know, I'm not motivated every day, so it doesn't always work. One of the best uh, systems I found for like, when I'm not training towards a specific competition, for instance, or a trip or anything like that, is to do three days on, one day off, three days on, one day off, and then have like a couple of things that I think should be included in those three days. So it could be a gym session, a bouldering session, and a stretching session. Um, and then I would just, you know, do exactly what I felt like doing within those three days and try and get everything in as efficiently as possible and whenever it felt right. So um, on the first day, maybe I planned for doing a gym session, but I realized that, you know, I was extremely motivated to climb. I found some good friends in the gym and we were having a good session on, on a project or something like that. Then I think it's better to focus on just that session and letting that session be what it is. And then the next day you have planned for the gym, but maybe on that day you realized, oh, stretching is something I really want to do today. Well, move the gym session to the last day, and then that's all you have to do on the last day. Like, you don't have to have structured training for every single day. You just do it on the day that's important. Uh, yeah, if you see what I mean. Like, distributing it in that way, I think it's, it's uh, helped me a lot to get all the training in that I wanted to get in and not neglecting anything, but also not uh, neglecting the fact that my psych is very important for me. Mm. Mm. I'm curious, do you ever actually feel like really psyched to do your stretching day? <laughs> <laughs> That's something I always struggle with, man. It always goes to the back burner. Yeah. Uh, stretching is extremely painful for me. Um, <laughs> like, I, I really right. don't understand people who say like, oh, you know, it's it feels pretty good with a nice stretching day. It's so far from my yeah, it's relaxing. reality. 
Yeah, like it's pure agony. So what I do is, <laughs> and with a lot of these things there are, you know, that are painful, I just embrace it as much as I can. Like <laughs> I just go 100% okay. like, okay, time to bring the pain game. And then just go 110% with that emotion, embrace it, take it in and just enjoy the pain in the end. Um, so that's how I deal with stretching. <laughs> <laughs> you think it's helped you? Uh, I do. I, I think in a lot of areas in my life, that's kind of how I have to have to deal with it. Like it's the same with the, with the winter session that I discussed earlier when it was very, very, very cold. Um, is that I just thought, saw it as like, okay, let's just embrace this painful cold and just go with it. And then it's like, yeah, it just works if you're dedicated towards that emotion and you embrace it. Usually when things are hard in, in any way, shape or form, be it in training or climbing or life, it's just easier to take an emotion and try to flip it into something positive, I feel like. Um, so if you're not if if you're not psyched on anything, then how do you make yourself psyched for it? Is the question. Mm. Yeah. And with stretching, that's pain and embracing that pain. <laughs> <laughs> and how has your flexibility increased, and how is that playing out in your climbing? Do you feel like you've noticed a difference from that? Uh, definitely. So for the first many years of my climbing, I never did any stretching or mobility training or anything like that, and. Uh, I have to be very consistent with it for it to actually like, yeah, for it to sit and actually still work. So if I don't stretch for a week, I go back to square one. But whenever I don't go back to square one, it feels very beneficial for my climbing. Um, it does depend though, because I think outdoor climbing isn't as dependent on having that flexibility and mobility, generally anyways. But competition climbing and indoor bouldering is I think it's quite crucial for for you to reach your highest performance. Uh, and you'll notice that in a lot of the top end competitors is that their mobility and flexibility is almost always very, very high. Um, so I, I, yeah, I, I think it, it helps a ton with my climbing in many different ways. Got you. How much time per week do you commit to it? Would you guess? <laughs> So whenever I'm uh, good about it, I try and do like maybe five hours in total of mobility training and stretching in a week. Uh, okay. And then other times it's maybe, you know, 20 minutes per day. Okay. Uh, 15 to 20 minutes per day. Usually I always warm up with a little bit of, of stretching and mobility. Um, and I find that very easy to include in my training because, you know, I, I'll probably head up into the gym, find somebody that I know, chat with them a little bit while I'm doing all of these things. And then it goes by very quickly and, uh, yeah. And then it's easier to move forward with the, with the climbing, climbing training. I want to circle back to a couple specific, uh, strength exercises. And I actually have a question for you from a listener. Oh, cool. <laughs> uh, that feels right to ask right now. I've got a couple from listeners, but um, you've already touched on this, but I'd love to hear you elaborate on it. This is from Florian, and Florian writes, I've read somewhere sometime about Emil avoiding crimps entirely for a long time mm. because he was afraid of finger injuries in the beginning of his climbing career. 
I'd like to hear him elaborate on that. And I'm curious how it affected his development of finger strength. Um, also, did he avoid fingerboarding, fingerboard training as it usually involves crimped finger positions? But yeah, you've talked about how you avoided your crimping for a long time. Mm. And you've kind of had to make that up um, in, in more recent years by focusing on it. How has that process looked for you? Um, so the thing was that when I started climbing, I got a finger injury that was quite intense after about a year of climbing. Uh, actually not related to climbing, but it was uh, worsened by climbing. And so I got, I was playing soccer and somebody kicked my finger and it, Oof. and it uh, kind of broke. So I got, I got a stress fracture uh, that I kept climbing on and it goes worse and worse. And after a while it was, it's got like, it's it swelled up to about twice its original size whenever I climbed. So I had to stop for, I don't really remember, but quite some time. And after that I was never, never crimping almost for I think the first four years of my climbing or so, I would never like go for a crimped position. Um, I would pretty much always opt for climbing pinch, pinchy boulders or slopey boulders or stuff with big moves. It's uh, so like, of course my fingers would get into that position, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't aim for it. I wouldn't try and climb that way. And then I realized one day that, you know, it was, it was, holding me back in a way that was just ridiculous uh, and unnecessary because my fingers weren't injured in that way. Like I, I would get some tweaks here and there, but it wasn't like I was cursed to never crimp or anything. Uh, so what I would do is I started, I remember distinctly that I started trying all the easiest boulders in the gym uh, that weren't on jugs and just try and hold everything in a full crimped position usually on vertical boulders then, because that was where you could find them, and just close those crimps as intensely as I could all the time. Um, just to get into that mindset as much as possible. Um, because it was quite apparent in my climbing that it, like whenever I had to fully crimp something, it just opened up. There was nothing I could do. So there were so many boulders that were just out of reach. Even though there was like this one move that was not at the crux at all, but it would always shut me down because that's the one where you had to full crimp. Um, and then all the other moves would, yeah, would work as long as they weren't with a closed crimp or a half crimp for that matter. Um, so I always had to get my thumb on, on pinches or on some crystal or something to be able to climb. Um, so then I decided like, this is not who I want to be as a climber. And I started changing it by just including it as much as possible actively in my training. Um, and again, I, what I did was not on a hangboard, I would focus on doing it on the wall because that's where I needed it. Uh, and I would do it in, a, in the most safe environment that I could find. So I would always be sure that I couldn't you know, fall and just get thrown off the wall and then injure myself. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's really smart. So starting on climbs that are easy for you and forcing that, that position and um, taking it really easy. How did you progress that as it got more comfortable? So I think what what I think is that with grip strength, with be it from pinches or slopers or crimps, is that you get to a certain point and you start focusing on something that's your grip type. But I think everyone always, if you have a strong grip, be it at a, as a full crimp or a pinch, you still have a strong grip and you can work up all the other types of grips quite easily. You just have to rewire your mind a little bit towards holding that specific position. Um, mm. 
and so that was the thing. I just rewired my brain into thinking that fulcrums are comfortable. I can enjoy these. Fulcrums are comfortable. I can enjoy these. And then suddenly that kind of worked. And suddenly, yeah, I would be able to, to hold smaller holds and fully crimp them and with no big issue. How long do you think that process took to, to go from when you went from like, okay, I haven't done this in years to, do you feel like your crimp is caught up and now you have like a balanced crimp strength compared to your other grip positions? I would say that at the first like year or so, I was, it, it, it got to a decent level quite quickly, but nowhere near my uh, other strengths. But nowadays, if the hold is, is like the right size for me, I'm probably as strong as, with a full crimp as I am with many other holds. Um, I still have really big issues with the smallest of holds. Like if you have a, mm. yeah, just a very, very, very small crimp, I don't really feel comfortable on. I can't really tell why. Um, if it's, you know, just mentally or if it's strength or if it's skin or if it's whatever it is. I can't really figure out always because sometimes I can pull quite hard on smaller holds, but often it's not something that I actively go for. Um, but I've also come to the conclusion that I don't really enjoy going for the smallest holds because I find the risk a little bit too, yeah, too high still. Um, I mean, I mean, I don't know. I might just be lying to myself, but I am a not a heavy climber, but I am slightly heavier than most um, like V13 plus climbers. And I do find the smallest holds a bit scarier because I don't know if my weight is going to injure my fingers or not. Mm. Just because it's... I and, the, and I have a lot of pulling power, as I mentioned earlier. So like I can hold that weight with just my arms quite easily. But then the question is, is my fingers going to last for it as well? If I had better, if I was way better at using my feet and, and using my lower body on climbs, maybe I'd feel more comfortable. But given the style that I have uh, and the fact that when I cut loose, I can just usually try and hold on and it kind of often works. And sometimes it's better to fall off then <laughs> because, you know, then you don't actually risk injuring yourself. But I would probably try too hard on a lot of holds. Um, so yeah, I try and avoid the smallest holds still. But the progression is, is definitely happening and I don't feel weak at crimping anymore, really. Okay, let's talk about pulling power. You've mentioned it a few times. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I've mentioned your one-arm pull-ups. How much does that serve you in your actual climbing? Like how much does that help you? Um, and then I'd be really curious just for the fun of it, I'd love to hear you kind of guide me through how I might approach doing a one-arm pull-up mm. you know I, I can i can hold a lock off um for a few seconds it's not easy for me it's pretty hard i've been able to do one-arm pull-ups in the past years ago i'm a little heavier than i was uh, at the mm. time and um but I, I haven't focused on it for a long time but i think it'd be really fun i also I, i'm like is this a good use of my time would this actually help my climbing <laughs> or not so <laughs> i'd love to hear how you think about that yeah um so I'll start off with how it's affected my climbing. And I, I wouldn't say that it's actually something that's helped me. It's helped me do a lot of hard boulders um, quite quickly and more easily than maybe what I what's reasonable. But it's also hindered my climbing quite a bit. So I've actually, throughout the years, structured getting weaker as a part of my uh, training. 
Like I've actively oh, gotten, interesting. I've actively gotten heavier and not trained pulling so much for a few weeks to get heavier and like lose that power, uh, so that I could, so that my body would catch up technically, and then I would increase my power again uh, by just doing what I think is fun with with pulling and with that kind of training. Uh, it's happened. I've done it both actively and I've done it uh, passively because after a while. Like my elbows have hurt and then I've just had to stop training it. And that's, yeah, then you automatically start using the rest of your body quite a lot more because you can't really use the upper body. Um, and then I've actively done it a few times as well. And uh, what I'll say is that it's, from what I've heard, like not f far from every World Cup climber can do a one-arm pull-up. Mm. Like... I heard one person say that the majority can't, which kind of should be an indicator that it's probably not so necessary. It's something that might help you as a climber, but it's the same with uh, being able to hold like a four millimeter crimp mm. as some people can do. It's like, it's definitely good if you ever encounter a move where you climb on a four millimeter crimp, but you never do. Um, mm. It's the thing. like. I was actually starting to count the smallest holds that I've ever encountered on climbs. And the lowest I get down to is usually around like nine millimeter, 10 millimeter crimps. Wow. Um, and they're just on steeper terrain. And it's always on, like, yeah, that's the thing. If you do find a very, very like a slab that's inwards, then yes, that finger strength might help you, but better foot technique is gonna be so much more beneficial. So I don't think having the strength to hold on onto like four millimeter crimps is something that will necessarily help you. But the thing is, as long as you're not getting injured, it's not going to hurt you either. Right. And I think it's the same thing with having upper body power is that, you know, you can probably do a lot of moves a little bit easier than many others would, but it's not something that will help you on every climb. It's most likely not going to help you on a lot of climbs. It's more just that kind of, it's an, it's an excess power that isn't always uh, usable. And it's just, it's the same with a lot of these kind of showy moves that you have a lot of, like you, like you mentioned earlier, these kind of tricks, party tricks, uh, like doing a front lever is of course, extremely cool. And to some extent it's very usable for climbing, but I haven't ever encountered a climb where I have to hold the front lever for five seconds. Like even when you're climbing, even when you're climbing on a roof, you're always using your feet. And if you're not using your feet, you're going to be campusing between the holds instead. So holding that front lever is almost never something you do. And the amount of load that you actually put on your, on your core and your, your lats is never near the amount you need for the front lever. So what I think, it's better to focus on is like, okay, that position that you're in on a roof, like if you're using the front lever to get a stronger core for steeper climbing, I think it's more worth thinking about, okay, but how long can I hold, like, how long can I hold myself in a roof before my core just drops off? Yeah, like maintaining tension through the feet, things like that. Exactly. Like where where is the cutoff point? Is it the fact that you can't hold a front lever for 10 seconds or is it the fact that you can't hold like a, a straddle level lever for 30 seconds? Or like where what is actually the thing you need to focus on? What, what, what do you want to apply it for? Like why are you training this specific thing? Do you need it for anything? 
most likely is the answer is going to be no for a lot of these exercises that we do but they will help you get stronger they will help you like it's of course better to be able to hold a 10 second front lever than to not hold a 10 second front lever if you could choose but you do distribute your training in some ways and if that if training towards holding your 10 second front lever is going to take away an hour of your climbing then i reckon it's probably not worth it it's probably better to spend that time on the wall or doing all kinds of other exercises um, and the same do go does, does go for the uh, one arm pull up i think it's like it's a nice trick to have i uh, it helps my specific climbing style quite a bit here and there but generally as a climber it's not really something that i feel i would recommend like hey you've got to train your one arm pull-ups because otherwise you're not gonna <laughs> you're not gonna progress over v7 you're you're that's no way man it's like yeah it's 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 extra power that you can use in certain circumstances um do you think it's gotten you more youtube subscribers <laughs> i i don't know i think i it's developed a bit of a specific style that i can apply whenever i i want to like i can do cool campus moves here and there that's kind of funky to watch um but they're not the most optimal way to climb always so it's like i do think some people might be like, oh, that's pretty cool. Let's click that subscribe button. But uh, <laughs> but I, I hope it hasn't affected it too much. No. <laughs> I do hope it's not just for my one arms. <laughs> no, no, I don't think so. Um, just for fun, let's say that my goal is just to be able to post videos of doing one arms on Instagram. Um, what do I do? Yeah. All right. how, how do you progress the, the one-arm pull-ups? Yeah, let's get into it. So essentially, I mean, it's like uh, eccentric one-armers, I think, are the uh, best way to approach them. So negatives. Um, so pulling up with like a rubber band or with your, with your other hand and then trying to go as slowly as possible but as consecutively as possible throughout the movement uh, all the way down to, to zero, to hanging is one of the most fundamental parts of getting stronger at the one-arm pull-ups, I believe. The thing with it is that it's also, it has a pretty high risk factor. Um, like if you overdo it, I think most people would start feeling it in their elbows. Uh, and so I would say that doing weighted pull-ups is like a slightly safer method. And usually, I don't know the exact number, but I, I think around 70 to 170 to 100% of your body weight as a pull-up is a good place to start working towards the one arm because then i think your elbows are a little bit more secure you're usually gonna uh, not be able to like push yourself quite as uh, intensely when doing the pull-up as you can with the reversed one arm pull-up um, so that's usually my first recommendation is that you 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 start off by working on your your weighted pull-up strength uh, i do also think that if you're doing negatives it's probably quite good to do it off of uh, holds that aren't bars. So like maybe do it on a bigger edge or if you have good crimp strength, then do it on a smaller edge or do it off uh, like a sloper ball or something like that. Um, just cause that, my theory is that you can recruit more of your muscle fibers. Uh, like cause, cause doing a one arm pull up is a lot about grip strength as well. And it's easy to forget that, that the grip strength it doesn't. You can't really notice it so well as a climber because you have such an, uh, you have so much more of it than you need. But it's like, 
when you start gripping, when you start actually engaging those muscles, for me, it definitely makes a difference. Um, the harder that I actually grip, the harder that I try to recruit the muscles in the back. Um, so I think doing them, like if you're doing negatives, I think it's better to do it off a, uh, yeah, off a hold instead of a bar to just get more muscle activation. Um, but also I think it can keep it, as long as you're not doing it off a hold that you're gonna, that's gonna injure your fingers, I think it's gonna be, um, you're gonna have to be in more control with your arm as well. So the, the negative one arm pull up isn't gonna be quite as intense. It's gonna be more focused on like uh, being solid and structured. Yeah, because you have to have to keep everything in control then. Uh, but that's just me theory crafting, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> well, cool. Yeah, thanks for that. It's it's interesting. The one time I have been able to do a one arm pull up, I think this was like 2015 or something, and I just I just trained my ass off all summer. I wasn't even <laughs> climbing. I was just like training on the hangboard and in the weight room because I thought that was going to make me awesome. Didn't work that yeah. well for people listening. Uh, but I did improve my weighted pull-up a lot. And it was interesting. I, I think I was right around like 70 to 80% of my body weight added to my harness. Yeah. Um, so I could, I was like maybe 150 pounds. I could do a, a 150 to 155, somewhere in there. And I could do a pull-up with like 125 or 130 pounds added. Right. Yeah. Um, so maybe that's like 85%, whatever people can do the math, but, <laughs> but then I could do a one arm. So you, you really don't need to get to double body weight to be able to do a one arm, which I think is interesting. Yeah, that's actually true. I've gotten a lot of questions about that. Like how, like the fact that you sh people th seem to think you have to be able to do like 220% of your body weight, but definitely not the case. Uh, I think you could get away with maybe doing 160% if you're, if you're strong enough in that position. Um, I don't actually know the reason why that is, like why you can, the conversion isn't as clear, like why you're yeah. not like pulling with half your... Um, I think maybe you can recruit more than half of your back muscles with one arm. Yeah, that should, yeah, that that's should my definitely, theory. Yeah, <laughs> that does make sense. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's pretty simple, but that, yeah, that's my theory with it. Yeah. <laughs> well, cool. I'm going to play with that. That's going to be fun. <laughs> Give it a whirl. <laughs> Add some of that stuff back in. Um, I have a listener question. We talked a little bit about World Cups, and I want to dig into that. This question's from Flynn. Um, real quick, can you pronounce your first name for me? <laughs> Do you say Emil or e Emil? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I really don't know how I pronounce my own name in English, because I, I don't know it. <laughs> It's, it's, it's... That's hilarious. Emil is the... Uh, e Emil. Say yeah. it again. Emil. Okay. Emil Abramsson is like how you would pronounce it in Swedish. And I don't know if it's Emil, Emil, Emil. Oh, it's like, I've heard all types and I don't, I don't even know myself. So go, go with whatever okay. you feel like. Okay. Yeah. I think when I, when I read your name, I see Emil. Yeah. And then I was curious about it because of how your brother pronounced it in one of your videos. He he was like e yeah, e Emil and I was like, "Oh, that's that's different. I wonder if I if I'm doing it wrong." But yeah. okay. <laughs> Sounds like anything anything close is fine. Um <laughs> Flynn writes, "I was wondering about Emil's progression into competition and the World Cup scene. Hmm. How does he balance training and climbing for indoor versus outdoor and how does it feel to compete at that level having started climbing relatively late in life? Uh, I assume he means compared to the other World Cup 
competitors. And then um, finally, I'm or, or Flynn writes, I'm similar. I started climbing late, but I'm making quick progress, and I'm curious about the the World Cup scene. So, okay, so I'll I'll start off being real, real. Uh, so like. My first, my first uh, encounter with World Cups and international competitions, I had like uh, a lot of imposter syndrome, you know, where I, I felt misplaced. I felt like, wow, should I really be here? I'm just, cause I, 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 I like, I wasn't, I didn't, since I didn't start off by competition climbing, I started off by doing, just playing around with bouldering and then climbing a lot outdoors. And suddenly I gotten strong enough to start competing and actually performing there. Um, but I, my, my mind didn't actually catch up with me on that end that I was actually getting strong enough to start trying World Cup boulders. Um, so the first, like, first parts of it felt very, I did feel a bit misplaced. But you do notice quite quickly, since like I am at the level where I can climb on those boulders, I'm not strong enough to actually perform at the highest level. But I still feel like when I'm on them, it doesn't feel unreal it feels accessible if i was just a little bit better and if i just had a little bit more skill especially um so that's the big thing is that you i noticed quite quickly that it's like that i'm not completely misplaced anyways uh, and so the that imposter syndrome dropped a little bit it does feel surreal still whenever i've been doing it because i never when i started climbing i was like oh world cups looks really cool i'm never gonna be able to do that because I started so late and then it just kind of happened because I started performing uh, quite okay here in Sweden and so they yeah accepted me to the team after I uh, yeah submitted um, to enter it and that was really cool and I was extremely grateful for it because I didn't really think it would happen uh, before but anyways after having done a few now it still feels like I know I'm not strong enough to as I mentioned, perform at the highest level, but it's very motivating to know that if I just improve a little bit, then I can start touching uh, touching at the top. And I guess that's the, the basis of it all is that you always have you always have these goals and you always have these these things to aspire towards. And that's what helps me progress as a climber. And with World Cups, you know, it's it's that's exactly what it is. I can see all these top athletes that I, I know are better and stronger than me, but if I study them enough and if I try to learn from them as much as I can, then I know that it's not impossible for me to uh, approach their level. And uh, with the World Cups, I definitely noticed that it, that's a reality. Um, if I, you know, put the effort in, if I try harder, then I don't know things can happen. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so with training for it, which is the other question is that it's, I mean, it's quite similar in a way because outdoor climbing is for me, I guess, you find these projects, you climb on them, you train for them indoors, then you go outdoors. But with World Cups, it's you find these World Cups, you train for them, and then you add some extra things that are good for that specific format, but you're still training on boulders. You're still trying to do uh, boulders. And people can say a lot about things like, oh, competition boulders are far from being like outdoor climbs and they're far from being real boulders, etc. But in the end, almost any form of competition climbing is still climbing. It's the same basic type of movement and it's the same pattern that you need. 
it does exclude some climbers here and there. Like maybe if you're very good at static climbing on crimps, you're not gonna have a good time on a coordination dyno in a World Cup. But that's because you've trained a specific style. The thing that I've noticed is that on these quirky coordination dynos, you can learn so much about your performance outdoors by training on that style as well. Hmm. Um, and I feel like a lot of people keep on neglecting that fact and, and just stick to the idea that you don't see this on real rock, which is true, but like you can still evolve so much as a climber by practicing those movements and by understanding how momentum will affect your performance and affect you as a climber on the wall. And coordination dynos and funky moves like that are like the perfect way to train that perfect because it really takes it to its edge it's like mm. if you don't work with perfect momentum on those moves you don't actually you can't do them it's physically impossible on a lot of those world cup holders and then when you're good at that you can downscale it to to use that momentum on easier moves as well like you're working at the very upper limit of what's possible when it comes to using momentum and like the most efficient way to climb is naturally to do a lot of like to to, to use as much momentum as possible in your movement because you're just moving throughout yeah but with momentum instead of with your muscles um and that's the thing like with world cups yes you have to learn to be better at those moves to actually perform on them but it's not that different from outdoor climbing in the end it's it all it's all connected anyways um, so what I pretty much had to do is, I guess, focus a little bit more on that style, focus on using my momentum better and learning to just apply what I have outdoors on a slightly more extreme level. Yeah. Mm. So that's kind of how it was. I saw your video about, um, practicing flash training before I think one of your recent bouldering world cups. Mm? It, and it's, I, I watched that and I was like, yeah, that's. I don't practice that a lot, but um, I've started to practice it more in the last few years. And for the first time in my life this year, I've really started to flash some boulders outside that mm. I'm proud of. You know, I, I used to be, that, that used to just never happen. Like I basically would never flash anything. I really had to get the feel of the moves and mm. try different beta and make sure I had the holds really in a particular way. And it just took me time to kind of get the feel of things. And you know, the, the gym gives you such an amazing opportunity to just try flashing all the time, to just try yep. flashing tons and tons of different moves. And it builds up this kind of vocabulary of movement. Exactly. Um, but I, I imagine there's, or just from watching that video, it seemed like you were working on a lot of other skills in that type of session mm. as well. Can you, can you talk a little bit about why you would do a session like that? Yeah, I guess with flashing... Like there's two aspects to when flashing a boulder that are important. One is of course the fact that you're you're gonna have to move quite well on the wall and you're gonna have to work on your intuition when climbing. Um, but I think the biggest aspect that I find important about it is that you you have to get into this perfect zone and this perfect mindset before you hop on it. You have to you have to decide for yourself that you're gonna perform. Um, in a way that's not very often encountered in climbing. It's often encountered when we're like on the red point burn on a project and we're trying to give it all our all. But I don't think it's very common when we're just having a session in the in the gym and just, you know, hopping on something. It, it, we usually don't try as efficiently and as hard as we possibly can. It's more just, it, it's good times. It's good vibes. Um, but having that 
extra element of like, okay, this matters, this attempt is relevant. Uh, it can give you a lot of benefits mentally in terms of how hard you can try whenever you need to try hard. Uh, so that's why I think it's important to work on on flashing boulders and, and be in that mental zone where, yeah, where you have to give it all you got. Yeah, cool. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's it is neat how it does translate to red point climbing as well. Hmm. Just like showing up and, and really having that kind of mindset of like, this is my shot. I'm going to execute it. I, I really do think it's it, it's helped me with that as well. So yeah, <clears throat> more flash sessions. <laughs> that's cool. <laughs> I'm curious with the World Cups, do you have specific goals for yourself as a competition climber? And I'm curious if those, you know, we already talked about um, the Big Island and, and how um, the Queen Mother motivated you earlier in your climbing career. Does competition climbing motivate you to the same degree that these outdoor projects do? Um, both yes and no. It's a must, much, much bigger, like, uh, it's a bigger picture in terms of training and motivation because you're, you're just working on everything all at once to become a better climber. And I'm a quite competitive person, so it can be good to have that mindset as well because I don't have often encountered it in climbing. Um, like whenever I play basketball or, or soccer or anything like that, I, I, I go insane almost. And <laughs> I really miss that aspect because in climbing, you know, I don't, almost ever have it because it's very hard like first off i can't really compete against many other climbers because we all have such immensely different um like body types and strengths etc so it's it's very seldom that i have this that it that it's a competition on a boulder with anyone else it's either that person crushes it or i crush it and there's no real in between quite often um, so it's hard to get into that mindset, but in competitions, it, I do access it a little bit more like the, the, the wild flame inside of me trying to just win. <laughs> mm. And, uh, that's something I really enjoy about competition climbing is that I, I, I get this very serious focus when I do it and, uh, it's hard to get elsewhere in climbing because when I do like when I do outdoor climbs, the way I approach it is that I actually start competing against myself and I just go like trying to think that, okay, you got to be stronger than you were yesterday or stronger than you were five minutes ago and just crush this now, which is good. But it's also like, it's not, it's not the entire spectrum of competing because you gotta, mm -hmm. you gotta have uh, like people you are facing as well and not just yourself <laughs> even though i do think that's a really nice aspect to climbing as well the fact that the the biggest competitor is you like i think that's a, one of the best aspects about the sport is that a lot of people can enjoy that fact because not not everyone enjoys like competing against others it's not yeah it's not for everyone um yeah so yeah that's kind of what out what competition climbing does to me is that i get a little bit more competitive, which helps my, uh, my training and focus a bit. Are you planning to continue doing world cups on your trip? Uh, well, so the world cups are over for the trip and then they start up again. What is, I guess like April next year. And we're unsure, like we plan to be on the road around that time, but it's still, we're still not sure where we'll be or how it will be then. Uh, but since I will be like, this will be the first time that I'm, 
focusing on climbing entirely in my life. I've always done other things at the same time, um, which means that I might break new grounds because you know when you focus purely on something, you get better at it. So if I do get a lot stronger during the trip, and if I do find a little like a new level of my climbing, then most definitely I will try for for more World Cups next year. Um, so as it is right now, yes, definitely. There will cool. definitely be more if I can. <laughs> awesome. Well, I'm excited to follow your trip through your videos and, <laughs> and see how it all unfolds. Um, Thank you. Emil, I want to just kind of start wrapping up with a few fun questions mm -hmm. that I have for you. And this one wasn't, uh, this was submitted by a friend of mine and it's not specifically for you, but I think it's a perfect one to ask you. Um, and it's just a hilarious story that I, I've been wanting to share on the podcast. But, uh, my, my friend Seth sent me this message. And basically the question is like, what is one of the weirdest or worst training experiments or exercises that you've tried? And I'm going to share his story. He, he wrote to me and he wrote, since you have the ear of the core climbers, I think something entertaining you could do is to ask people to tell you about their most weird or stupid training exercise they've tried. Because I'm up here in Alaska, he works, um, I think, in the oil industry in the summer. I'm up here in Alaska using this tread wall, and I'm trying to take the weight vest off while resting and put it back on when I'm climbing. But the tread wall is old and doesn't completely stop. <laughs> <laughs> Which I love. It just paints the best picture. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> the struggle. Yeah. Oh, no. Does anything come to mind and anything you've tried that's just like, okay, that was, that was just totally ridiculous. I think the dumbest thing I've ever done. <laughs> yeah. The dumbest thing I've ever done in terms of training was like, I'd injured my left arm so I could only climb with my right arm, but I wasn't going to stop and climb like easy boulders. So I would try harder <laughs> boulders and just like go try the hardest I possibly could and I completely broke my right arm from it because I was like I was trying so freaking hard I was trying like I was pushing grades but with just one arm <laughs> so I was trying to do as hard boulders as I possibly could with just the right arm and what happens is that you know you're doing a lot of like you it's kind of hard to grab smaller holds because you you have to have you have to be so specific in your movement so there were a lot of jugs in the boulders that I did and I would just rip as hard as I possibly could catch the next one and uh well then it didn't go quite as as well as I wanted it to and that was definitely <laughs> the dumbest like because I did this for like a week or two or something uh just kept on going and being like yeah this is this is good now I at least get some training in not a good approach, everyone. Don't try that at home. <laughs> <laughs> so you ended up with uh, two injured arms yeah, instead of yeah. just one. <laughs> well, the thing is, the left arm was like, you know, it was, I would hardly call it injured. It was just like, I need to rest it a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> That's a good one. Um, do you have a favorite film that you've made? Oh, a favorite film. Uh, hmm. I really don't know, honestly. Like, I think I'd have... Because I, I, I've gotten the question before and I never know what to answer because uh, I think the best... Like, one of the best videos would be the one on, on a boulder called Houdini that I released, like, two months back or something because it was the best session almost ever. <laughs> we we all <laughs> sent the boulder 
Uh, it was a seven year long project for me and my brother and we literally did it on the same day. And we had this, this third friend with us who did his project, which he had spent maybe a year on as well. Um, wow. So it's just one of those days when everything came together out of nowhere and it was magical. Uh, but the video in itself is, is, I don't know, I find it hard because I, I uh, how to put this, it's really hard to make videos and not wanting to constantly improve. Mm. which which i think is good of course like improving is of course essential but it means that whenever i look back through anything that i've made it's always with a very critical eye uh yeah i always i always like think about these 20 things that i need to change if i ever make anything similar to it so it's hard for me to say like this was a good video this is i'm something that i am now proud of but i was at the time a lot of like most of my videos i was really happy with when i made them um, but then after the fact, it's like, oh, I wish I would have done this, this, this differently. Uh, and the idea is actually to give, like to take all the lessons that I've learned throughout the years, uh, into this, uh, this HC tour that I'm making, like this, these, this video series that I'm make, going to make during the trip. Uh, cause I have a couple of episodes already planned out on boulders that I will try. One of them, of course, being the big Island, uh, and then dream time. Yeah. And on those specific videos, I want to do everything in my power to make the videos as as uh, good as I possibly can. The thing with YouTube is that you want to be consistent with your content. Like you don't want to release anything once every second month or so, because the kind of like the algorithm really disrupts your flow. So it's hard to build an audience then because uh, it doesn't pop up in people's feeds. So you do want to be quite consistent and drop things like maybe weekly or every other week. I don't really know, but at least quite consistently. Um, which also of course means that you have to keep on producing and it's hard to, it, it's both hard and easy to evolve at the same time when you're that consistent with your production. Right. You can't make every one of them like a spectacular masterpiece. Exactly. Exactly. And that's like, that's something that I think I'm going to focus more on during this trip. It's like, I'm going to make a lot of outdoor videos of just regular sessions on some of these nicer climbs that, that we have in Europe and just good vlogs, essentially, and sessions. But then I want to try and make the best climbing videos that I can possibly make on these uh, bigger projects. And those are, of course, going to take a lot more time, but then I'm going to distribute that time over a longer period. So I'm not just making them in like one week or two, two weeks. It's going to be like two or two months long production for each of them, essentially, mm. where I... I make the video, like I've done this with a few videos in the past as well. And it's never been like a good approach for my evolution as a YouTuber, but it's been good for me as a person. Mm. Uh, so then I've, I've done, I've done a video, it's finished. And then I remove it essentially and redo it from the get go. Wow. Just cause I like, so I, I do it, I rewatch it or I finish it. Then I feel like, okay, this is a good video now. And then pretty much do it all over again to try and make it better the next time. And that's like the only way to make them as good as I can. And it's what those, that's where I've learned the most. And I want to take all of those lessons into these, these coming months. Um, and so those videos will take a lot longer to produce, maybe like two, yeah, as I mentioned like two months. Um, but then I want them to be, yeah. The best, the best videos I can make. And then I'll answer the question with one of those. I, ho <laughs> I hope that's my, my plan anyways. <laughs> that's great. That's great. 
Yeah, that's a great answer. Um, for people listening that haven't watched any of your videos before, which ones do you like to recommend to people that are just discovering your channel for the first time? Uh, so I think the Big Island video is is quite accessible for people. Um, it's really good. So I tried to tell the story from the start to the finish. And I guess you could what you could do is you watch the first one, because I, I, I dropped one video. You might not have seen it, actually. It was the first video that I dropped back in 2019. Uh, like when I started my channel, which is the first session on it. And uh, it oh. gives a little bit more, it's, it's, it's shot with like a broken GoPro camera. So it's really not the, <laughs> the best production ever, but it, it does give a little bit more. I guess I would recommend someone to watch the newest one first and then watch the old one. Uh, okay. That could be a pretty good way to start. And then I guess most of my outro videos is where there's the most soul in like mm. usually when I've done outdoor videos, they've been on bigger projects and, and stuff that I really care about, uh, indoor videos are more training and situated towards working towards my goals, which I think is, it's like nice if you, if you already know me and if you already, mm. uh, know me as a climber, but if you're new to the channel, I don't know if it's quite as, as valuable. Um, so yeah, many of the outdoor videos I think give out the most, the most of myself. Awesome. Well, I will yeah. link to the two, the videos of the island and uh, you made an amazing film about uh, the Queen Mother and Houdini as well. So I'll link to all those in the show notes for people that want to check them nice. out. Nice. Thank you. Do you have a collaboration? You've done some fun collaborations on your channel too. Do you have like a, actually, maybe I'll ask this. If you could do a collaboration with anybody like who are some of your dream people that you'd love to make a fun video with? Wow, that's a that's actually a difficult question. Um, there's so many climbers out there that I would love to sort of. Actually, no, I know, I know, <laughs> I know. Like, no, but th this is like it's funny. It's a funny question actually because when I thought about it, it's so obvious. So one of the people that I've always always wanted to go into the head of as much as possible as a climber is Jimmy Webb. Mm. Um, he started a little bit later in life as well and he's like he has this style of climbing that I find uh, entrancing and he's he just he's just kept on going for many many years and just seemed to love the sport in a way that's very uh, real and genuine and I find that very interesting but I haven't seen so much of him throughout the years like I've seen a lot of videos I've seen almost every video with him, I reckon. But I've, uh, in only a few moments, I've, I've gotten the questions that I look for, I think. Like the videos are, are like a lot of them are really great, but I think I would, I would, uh, yeah, I would just wanna see him on a session, see his thought process on boulders mm. uh, even more than I have. Um, and just get to know him from my perspective, from what I wanna know, I think would be, definitely something I'd, I'd love to love to see i'd love to see it too i hope that happens someday and uh i feel similarly fascinated by jimmy and his approach and uh he he doesn't he's a quiet guy he doesn't seem to share a lot of 
a lot of himself in these videos and uh, he's someone that I really hope to have on the podcast someday. So yeah, Jimmy, if yeah. you're listening, if, if anyone's <laughs> listening who's friends with Jimmy, let's get, him, let's get him on Emil's YouTube channel and on the podcast. Um, <laughs> no, that, that's awesome. Yeah, I, I hope you guys cross paths in Switzerland or somewhere and get to do that. That'd be mm. really cool to see. <laughs> well, awesome. Emil, I think that's all the questions I have. Actually, I, I have one this is a question that I, I ask all my guests. Um, I almost missed it, but I love to ask people what they've been grateful for lately. I think that's just a really fun way to to help myself, to help all the listeners hmm. just take a second and reflect and, and uh, you know, think about some of the simple things that we take for granted. But yeah, I'd love to ask you, what is something that you felt especially grateful for lately? Actually, there's a lot of things, um, especially now that the trip is approaching. The fact that I can make that dream a reality is like I'm just so incredibly grateful to of course all my viewers who actually do make it a big like they're a big part of making it a reality uh, and to Eric Carlson who I've worked with throughout the years and who's like been a pretty big mentor in in my video making and in in life as well uh, and then just literally to everyone in my life because they've all affected it in a way or another in terms of how I'm getting towards this uh, this trip and this goal, and I have like an immense amount of gratitude for all that. That's definitely something I think I think about it on a daily basis, even. And uh, yeah, I guess that's my answer. Well, thank you. I'm grateful for this conversation. Really good to <laughs> meet you and talk with you. And I think this was a really good one. There's a lot of fun stuff in there, and. Uh, you're a really thoughtful guy. You, I can really tell through your videos and through how you answer these questions and think about things with your caveats and um, with your explanations. I can tell that that you really put a lot of thought into your own climbing and not only that, but how you're presenting yourself to the world and what you're sharing and how people might take that, you know, out of context. And um, yeah, you, you really put a lot of thought into it and, and it really comes through and it, I think it's helping a lot of people. So thank you for what you do. And thank you very much for saying so. That that means a lot, actually. <laughs> and thanks for having me on. This was a lot of fun. Oh, good. Yeah. A lot of yeah, fun. My pleasure. <laughs> my pleasure. Fun for me, too. Um, when do you think you'll complete the van? When are you going to hit the road? In about a month, actually, it seems like. Oh, that's, ex that's so exciting. Yeah. <laughs> like a month and a half or so is when we're leaving. So very soon. Nice. <laughs> nice. And you guys are building everything out yourself? Yep, yep. From uh, from scratch, removing old <laughs> old insulation and putting in new. So yeah, God, that's a full time job. It in is. Itself. It is indeed. <laughs> <laughs> and where's the first stop? Uh, so that will most likely be Switzerland and Italy. So because okay. uh, we're going to be quite close to uh, Cordelia's um, family, or yeah, she has family that lives in Bergamo in Italy. So we're going to be traveling in between Brion and uh, well Switzerland essentially and and uh, and Italy for a while. <laughs> so fun. Well, thank you again. I really look forward to following your films and seeing your process on this journey and let's do this again sometime. It's really good to Definitely. talk with you and and uh, there's a lot more stuff we can dig into. So it'd be great to have you back on. Thank you. Sick. Yeah. I'll be I'll be happy to come back on. <laughs> Cool. All right. Happy training. Thank you. Peace. Talk to you soon. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye.
Like we do it.